Last night, I looked up into the night sky, and I remembered that ever since I was a kid, I've loved the stars. Something about looking at the stars in the night sky reminds me of my place. It reminded me of something from the text this week, where the text says that God is not only the creator of everything that exists, but he chose the time and the place where each one of us would exist. And I was looking up into the night sky, and I remembered thinking back a little over 2,000 years ago that the Apostle Paul would have, from if you were, had been standing in the same approximate place at the same At the same time of year, you would look up in the night sky and you would see something very similar to what Paul would have seen 2,000 years. If you went back approximately 4,000 years, you would look up in the night sky in that place at the same time of year and you would have seen the night sky similar to what Abraham saw. If you looked up in the night sky 2,000 years approximately before that, some 6,000 years ago, After being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Adam would have looked up in the night sky and seen something very similar to what you see. I'm reminded of the goodness and the greatness of God and the place that he has chosen to put us in history I'm reminded of the immediacy and the importance of big God theology, and that's one of our themes for today. And a second theme for today as we look into Acts 17 is Paul is preaching or proclaiming Christ in Athens. I'm reminded of Paul's faithfulness to the opportunities, and this time the unique starting point or or where he, he, he attacks this with pagan thinkers. Remember that Paul's spirit was provoked because of the idolatry in the city of Athens. And then, and then after beginning to interact with and proclaim the gospel, not only on, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, but then he was proclaiming throughout the week in the, in the marketplace, in the Roman Agora with the Gentiles. So some of the philosophers invited him to speak about this new teaching more among the Areopagus. And so Paul finds himself with a new opportunity. Read with me in Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's what I referenced at the beginning 
In verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel, feel their way toward him and, and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Last week, we emphasized the faithfulness of Paul's practice with opportunities, which led to him having this further opportunity among the Areopagus. We also noted that he established, or he establishes credibility and goodwill with a, with a respectful tone and connecting with them through common ground, knowing something of how they think and being able to relate to it. But Paul knows that common ground isn't good enough. He must lead them to higher ground. Paul, therefore, must find a good starting place in order to correct the root of their wrong thinking. We began looking at this last week, but particularly in verse 23, my question to you is, when proclaiming Christ, where do we start? And part of that depends on the audience. Paul finds his best point of contact for gospel proclamation to be the place where he spots the root of their wrong thinking. Paul's aim with the Jews was also to correct the root of wrong thinking, but he had a different starting place in correcting the root of their wrong thinking because remember, he, we're saying he had a different emphasis because the Jews and the God-fearers already believe that they ought to worship Yahweh. They believe that they're accountable to him and they must follow his command and and they believe in the authority of the scriptures. But then Paul would use the Old Testament scriptures as his starting place to prove to them that the Messiah's death and resurrection was necessary. Remember going back to the beginning of Acts chapter 17? Christ's resurrection was, his, his suffering and resurrection was necessary because of God's holiness, because of our consistent disobedience because of God's requirement of a payment for sin, and because of God's promise that he would provide salvation. And add to this the fact that it can be seen in scriptural prophecy that this would take place, the Messiah's suffering on our behalf and God raising him from the dead. For these listeners, though, Paul has to get at the root of wrong thinking about God. I find this inscription as I'm walking among all of the temples that you have and the, inscri- and the statues that you have to gods, and, the, and there's, there's inscriptions to each of them, and I find this inscription, to an unknown God or to the unknown God, 
And Paul says, what you worship is not unknown, this I proclaim to you. Remember, they're, they're polytheistic, so they're covering all their bases. They even have one to an unknown God, just in case we missed somebody, or maybe somebody's. Paul will go on to show that this deity who is foreign to them should not, in fact, be foreign at all, and that he is the one true God who made the world and everything in it, and the one to whom we must ultimately answer. As we proclaim Christ to others, we too need to listen well and seek to know something of our audience so that we can start with common ground and and head to higher ground. To do that, understand where they're coming from so that you can begin at the root of wrong thinking, to work on correcting, correcting the first fundamental error that forms the basis for their wrong worldview. It's interesting to note that the basis of a wrong worldview is not knowing God. And if you don't know God, then you don't know you. So besides knowing something of your audience, you must know the God you proclaim. The more we study the word of God to know the God of the gospel, the more overwhelmed we are with God and the God that we present. Are we more or less persuasive when we are enthralled with the God we proclaim? And the more saturated we are with the scriptures, the better we are at listening for the falsehood underlying people's thinking. And the better we are at giving answer that aligns with what God says, so, which is what they need to hear. Whether or not we directly quote the scriptures, we'll come back to that in a minute, that the things that Paul says, even though he doesn't immediately quote the scriptures, everything he's saying is founded on the scriptures. Where is he getting his information? So know God by knowing his word. And know yourself and others by knowing God's word. And listen well to find a starting place to correct the root of wrong thinking. Now again, in Paul's case here, he's dealing with a fundamental error in thinking about deity and about our relationship to deity. As he continues in verses 24 to 28, he talks about something that everybody must come to understand about God and about us as human beings. Paul presents God as the creator. Paul presents God as the sustainer in all of his greatness and glory, and also the corresponding truth that man is dependent on God and beholden to God. Right anthropology is contingent upon right theology. Right anthropology, any kind of understanding of of humanity and our own existence and our own purpose and why are we here and what are we doing, what are we supposed to be about, right anthropology is contingent on right theology. Who is God? What is he about? The more you know of God in truth, the more you will know of yourself in truth. Without knowing God, we don't know who we are or what we're about. The God who made the world and everything in it, Paul says, this God is beyond all things and he's before all things. So he's beyond and before all these other deities that you've 
formulated by the imagination of man. And as we said, though Paul is not quoting the Bible to them, everything that he says is saturated with the truth of God's revealed word. Paul continues, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, God does not live in temples built by man. From almost last week, I showed you some pictures of Athens. And from almost anywhere in the ancient city of Athens, you could look up and see that Acropolis that still has famous ruins. Remember, we talked about the Parthenon being there. And so from Paul speaking in the Roman Agora at the Royal Stoa, among the Areopagus, this ruling body of leaders in Athens, they could have looked out from under this roof and he could have pointed to the Parthenon. You can see it. God does not live in temples built by man, nor does this Lord of heaven and earth need our service or worship. He doesn't need us to build him temples or monuments. He doesn't need us to be more glorified in himself. But not needing our service doesn't mean he doesn't deserve our undivided worship. The fact that God doesn't need us doesn't mean he doesn't deserve our undivided worship. In fact, it is quite the opposite. The fact that he has no lack doesn't mean that he isn't pleased with our right worship of him. In fact, we'll see at verse 30 that God rightly and reasonably has expectation of us that we must respond to him. And it is this God, Paul continues, who has actively created all peoples from the first man that he made. And he has appointed their time period in the boundaries of their dwelling place, their habitation. For those of you who are familiar with your Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, notice Paul is saying that this doesn't just apply to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And those descendants... That who would become Israel, but it applies to all peoples and individuals of all places and all times, of all ethnicities and all languages. God has allotted the time of your existence. He has allotted the place of your existence. Amazing, isn't it? I, for one, thoroughly enjoy this truth, and I gratefully and I enjoy gratefully giving God credit for placing me here and now, even for interweaving my life with yours for the sake of his kingdom and glory. Here, now, interweaving our lives together at this precise moment in time, according to his plan and his good pleasure. The scriptures confirm that the same is true for us, even in our trials. God is providentially orchestrating all these things. The question is, how will we respond to him in the midst of what he is doing or in the midst of what he is allowing? Along these lines then, God has made us all and determined our time and place that we should seek him, Paul says. Even if only groping about with our limited understanding, 
This is pictured as of, as of blindness. That we might make some effort to find him, to discover the reality of his, his existence, his presence. I don't know if you've ever studied the writings of Plato, but I remember thinking to myself when I studied some of the philosophy of these ancient Greek philosophers, I remember thinking to myself, Plato was so close, but he didn't find God. So close, and yet it's so sad to not know the one true God. The point is not that we can succeed on our own in this seeking, this groping, but the point is our responsibility. As the early chapters of Romans teach, all people fall short of seeking God wholeheartedly, and all people fall short of living up to God's holiness. Romans 1.18 all the way through 3 verse 20. We fall short of seeking God as we should, and we fall short of living up to his holiness. We all fall short of the glory of God. Yet this one true God who is so other, so unique, Paul says, is also not far from us. Your observation of the, of the natural world Epicureans, remember talking about them last week? In your observation of the natural world and, and in your rigorous reason, Stoics, your search for the supreme logic, the supreme logos, these things should in fact be leading you to conclude the existence of a unique God. Romans also teaches, therefore, that we are without excuse. From the, the existence of creation to the existence of our own conscience, your very ability to reason should make you ask. The ability that you have for creativity should make you ask if there is not an initial perfect creator. We are without excuse because of creation and conscience, according to Romans 1, 19 and 20, and Romans 2, verse 15. Paul continues, even some of your own poets have rightly acknowledged that we should know the immediacy of his presence in our very existence. In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live. In him we move. In him we have our being, possibly from Epimenides of Crete. Paul quotes a second poem from the poem Phenomena by Eratus to indicate a recognition or admission by some that we are God's offspring. It is he who made us. Paul quotes these poets on something true. And even though Paul quotes these poets that something they say is true to connect with his audience and gain ground with them, doesn't mean that he agrees with his audience or that he agrees with everything that these poets say, nor would he put them on a par with Scripture. But Paul is trying to gain access to them to see, again, like I said about Plato, so close, so close, but there's more. This unknown God This God I proclaim to you, 
He is the creator and he is the sustainer. We are dependent upon him for our existence. And listen, this is where Paul is going. He has rightful claim to our undivided worship. What happens if we don't repent and rightly worship God, but instead persist in idolatry? God is the creator and sustainer. We are dependent on him for our existence, and he has rightful claim to our undivided worship. Therefore, if we persist in idolatry, we will be judged. The only escape from God's righteous judgment against sin, the only escape from God's righteous judgment against sin is submission to the resurrected Jesus as the only means to be righteous because he himself will judge the world by this righteous standard, the righteousness of God. If God made us, Paul's argument goes, in verse 29, launching from the quote, If God made us with as wonderful and complex as we, his creatures, are, why would we think that some image made by the art and imagination of man, even if it's silver or gold or stone? My wife and I have been watching some documentaries about the uh, ancient Egypt and the amazing things that are being uncovered archaeologically in Egypt. And of course, I'm going through my mind, wait, hey, which one of these was, might have been the Pharaoh when Joseph was there? Hey, which one of these might have been Pharaoh with Moses? Maybe Ramses II, known as Ramses the Great. Those end up being representations for false gods, non-existent deities, or just people. And remember, the Greek gods, when you, when you study them and think about them, you think to yourself, they're just like us, just with more power. In fact, they're as petty and ridiculous as we are. Who wants a god made in man's image? No, it is God who made man in his image. And your ability to reason your ability to have volition, your emotional response should make us seek God. Why would we think that idols would do God justice? How is it that silly, silly representations are the way that we should acknowledge God. So Paul has circled back to the foolishness of idolatry at the root of their wrong thinking. The true God is far beyond man's idolatrous trinkets. And remember, that's true of all of your idols, whether it's yourself or another person or, or things or ideas or dreams that you have. They're just trinkets, so petty and paltry compared to the greatness of God that you should desire and admire and love and trust and fear and long to be like and long to please. He is so much better than our idols. Compared to the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, 
At verse 30, Paul reaches a significant turning point. He shifts from talking about God primarily to the accountability of his listeners to God and to the one whom God sent. This initiates the point of being a distinctly Christian appeal. Now he's referring to Christ. And the purpose of moving them away from their idolatry idolatry to the worship of the one true God is also to get them to repent and to respond to the Christ whom God has sent. And when we talk about a future judgment, what will be the result of God's righteous judgment? If we do not respond in faith to Jesus Christ, instead of Christ taking the penalty that you rightly deserve for your sin, instead the wrath of God will still be poured out on sin and you will be eternally punished for your sin in a place of eternal fire called hell. But Paul can tell his audience lovingly. Christians can tell you with love. I know that I deserve the same thing, but I have been rescued by God from that end. Will you not come to Jesus? Will you not respond to Jesus? You will face judgment. Will you stand before God in your sin or will you stand before God in the righteousness of Christ? So verse 31, as we're talking about whom has God appointed as Lord of judgment and Lord of salvation? He whom God has appointed as judge is also the only means to be rescued from our guilt, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes in these verses a new era of accountability having been inaugurated at verse 30. And it will end in in the appointed judgment of all mankind by the resurrected Lord Jesus. God has already set a fixed day, though we don't know exactly when it will be. God has already established the Lord Jesus as judge, whom he vindicated and exalted by his glorious resurrection from the dead. And this judgment will be done in perfect righteousness. There will be no, well, but I didn't know any better. There will be no, but I tried my best. There will be no, I was better than so-and-so. Jesus is the perfect standard. And Jesus is the only means. It is insufficient to just tinker with these high-minded ideas. Acknowledging this God must lead to complete submission. Isn't it interesting to think that at the root of wrong thinking of the Pharisees was still a misunderstanding of God and their relationship to God? A legalism misunderstanding the perfection of God and their inability to reach God on their own. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer on our behalf and rise again from the dead. 
He is Lord and he is judge. We must submit to God. We must realize that our sinful idolatry is killing us. Our sinful idolatry is killing us like the serpents were killing the Israelites in the wilderness. (laughs) Do you remember? And God had Moses erect a bronze serpent that if they looked on that serpent with, with faith, they would be saved. But if they didn't, they would die. And Jesus compared himself to that concept, the one who was raised on a cross. Look on him and be saved. Repent and look to Jesus as Lord. As we wrap up what happens with Paul in Athens, I ask us, just like we see in all of these examples happening again and again in Acts, what happens, what takes place when we faithfully proclaim Christ? What happens in verses 32 to 34? Many people reject but some believe. Some believe. Like you. Or like me. Many mock, in fact. But some believe. They scoff. They laugh at with contempt and derision. But because of the mercy of God, some believe. Paul has, in fact, faithfully done his part. Paul's message hits the mark. This is what's supposed to happen. Reject or repent and believe. Even though, in fact, this is likely just Paul getting started. And as we said last time, I'll tell you again, when Paul mentions the resurrection of the dead, he kind of gets cut off. He doesn't get to say very much more about Jesus. He's been trying to lay a foundation to get to Jesus Christ, and they cut him off, mocking, scoffing, scorning. But some people want to hear more, and I believe that's what Paul was going for. If some will still listen more, come back and ask more, I'll still talk to you more. You can choose to scoff, or you can choose to still Seek God through Jesus Christ. Many respond with rejection, some with wanting to hear more. And Dionysius and Damaris and others believe and follow Christ. Their names are here. My name probably isn't ever going to be written in some famous place, but it will be written. It is written in the book of life. By the mercy of God, Dionysius and Damaris came to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded that our expectation is the same. 
especially when, remember the overall context here, dealing with the intellectual elite? You're going to be met with some scorn and mockery. But that's okay. It's precisely okay because God is responsible for saving people. You're responsible to be faithful to the opportunity. And you do not who? You do not know who. You don't know precisely when or how it's going to come about. But if Jesus hasn't come back yet, then you know some will believe. There are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So how and why will we faithfully proclaim Christ like Paul does? As we wrap it up, I'm reminded that our foundation for obedience is to worship God. Our foundation for obedience is to worship God. Remember how we started talking about big God theology? Paul is provoked in his spirit by their idolatry, in a jealous zeal for the glory of the one true God. And he doesn't just throw up his hands in frustration. Instead, he takes whatever opportunity God provides to proclaim the gospel. And Paul doesn't simply ignore their wrong lifestyle. However, instead of merely attacking wrong behavior, he delves behind their way of living to the false thinking that shapes that living. And Paul presents right worship of God as the antidote with submission to Jesus Christ as the only means to be restored in right relationship to God, which, as we said, is where he gets cut off talking about the resurrection. But some wanted to hear more. So Paul's faithfulness to God is used for yet further opportunity, leading to the salvation of Dionysius and Damaris and others. We should worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. We should know God through the scriptures. We should know man through the scriptures. We should follow Jesus to obey Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we'll have his compassion, even as he has had on us. If we follow Jesus, we will obey his command to proclaim Christ. Remember that all of this starts with Paul's own heart of worship, worshiping God as supreme above all other things in his life. And it begins with his own submission to Jesus as Lord. And therefore, it is both his, his duty and his desire to follow Christ's command. The Lord has made me his child and his ambassador. The Lord has made me a citizen of his kingdom and also made me his soldier. The Lord has made me a disciple and a disciple maker. That is who you are if you are in Christ. Paul's identity, purpose, and behavior are bound up in the worship of God in an obedience to Jesus as Lord. Let's go and do likewise. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege of worshiping you together this morning.
of worshiping you with our hearts, of worshiping you with our study, trying to understand you from your revealed word, of, of worshiping you as we uh, seek to figure out what's, what's wrong in our own hearts and how you desire to, to burn that out of us and replace it with a holy desire for you and a right understanding for you. Father, we love you because you have loved us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to him. Thank you for the privilege of being used by him. We thank you that your word presents you as so much greater and so much better than any art or imagination of our own could possibly come up with. And that's exactly as it should be. We worship you alone as God. May we fear you, trust you, love you, and obey you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I just want to challenge you again to make knowing God your highest priority. If you will seek to know God as he reveals himself, if you will seek to know God as he reveals himself, you will worship God. And then you will be a person of prayer because you will see how much you depend on God. And you will be a person of obedience. Our highest priority is to know God. So I encourage you, especially believer, set aside the notion of reading your Bible as an obligation. Yes, it takes discipline to have good habits. But I want you to think of this as the place to seek God and know him. I do think it matters as to how we study our Bibles and why we read them and what motivates us. And be reminded, make this your highest priority, to know God and worship him as he reveals himself. And other things fall into place. Let's pray again in dependence on our Savior to help us. Father, we do love you. We worship you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, not because of our own ingenuity, but because of your mercy and grace. Father, we pray for you to reveal yourself to each heart that is gathered here. Cause us to repent and submit to Jesus as Lord. And may we seek to prioritize above all things, knowing you, even as the psalmist says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And Father, help us, even as your people together, as Christ's body, as his bride, his church, Cause us to help one another to seek you first. Use us mightily. Cause us to bear fruit, not for our sake, but for the sake of your own great name. We ask these things because of what Christ accomplished, not anything that we can accomplish. We love you. Amen.